Let's pray, shall we? The Heavenly Father, we do just thank you that we can um, yeah, gather here again this Sunday. And Lord, yeah, we just pray for uh, well, what I'm about to say. Uh, yeah, just pray that it is truthful and honouring uh, to your word, Lord. Um, amen. So, okay. Do you remember? Some of you, some of you may not, but some of, most of you here, I think, will remember people like the Leyland Brothers and... Um, Malcolm Douglas and the Bush Tucker Man. There was another guy who wasn't quite as famous, Ben Crop. I'm not sure if you remember any of the Ben Crop specialists. So Ben Crop focused more on, on, on the seas and islands around Australia. And there was one particular show that just stuck in my mind, and this was him. He was in a, on a Pacific island somewhere, but he's sitting on this great big flat slab of rock. And he explained that on that particular rock was his great or great-great-grandfather, was a missionary, and that's where they, the locals killed him. When you read the biographies of a lot of the missionaries, which you know, I really recommend you do, but a lot of them, they, they jumped on these old wooden sailing ships, headed overseas, and knowing that, that they'd never see their families again. And it was not only disease and, and other things that they died of, but often they, they would get to up these far-flung lands and often would face a lot of opposition... And a lot of them were killed. Um, and even those who were faithful, often, as you read through it, they, they, the initial missionaries weren't very successful, but often it would be the second generation of missionary who would have that breakthrough. Um, but, but, but the point is, they're often faced with this massive opposition, um, attacks and even murder sometimes. And so, as, as we've seen in the times of, of Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's not really different. Uh, as Steve... Uh, discussed last week and we have discussed um, uh, through previous weeks as as these people went out and as Paul and Barnabas go out they do continually face oppositions and false accusations and their physical safety is often under threat they're often attacked and as Steve keeps reminding us the the key to Acts is chapter 1 verse 8 but you will receive power in the whole when the Holy Spirit has come unto you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is their mission. This is the mission statement. This is the book of Acts. This is what Acts is tracking through as a movement. And chapter 13 and 14, if you remember your um, Sunday school classes, um, are focusing on the the first uh, missionary journey of Paul. And um, I did notice Janelle actually had a map printed out ready to go. So... Um, she's obviously following along carefully. But um, so last week, if you can see that, that map behind me there, they travelled from Antioch in Syria across to Cyprus, so that's arrows one and two. And today we're travelling up to Antioch in Pisidia, so that's, that's three and four. So just to sort of bring that into a bit of perspective of where we're up to. So firstly, so yeah... Verse 13, so Paul and his companions set sail to, to, from, from Paphos up to Perga. So notice there's been a bit of a shift. Last week, uh, at the beginning of chapter 13, it opens with, with Barnabas and his companions, including Saul. In verse 9 of chapter 13, for the first time, Saul is called Paul. And when we get to our passage today, verse 13, um, it's no longer Paul and company, but from here on it's Paul Sorry, it's no longer Barnabas and company, but it's Paul and company. So, so, so Luke records a shift in his way of thinking about, about the apostles and what they're doing. Paul has now risen to preeminence. 
So from now on, he's going to be the primary focus of, of Luke's record. And so a, passages, a passage opens with, with Paul and company journeying from... Uh, uh, I'll go back. Journeying from, yep, as we said, Paphos up to Perga. And on reaching land at Perga, John, that is John Mark, the, uh, the gospel author, he leaves them there and heads back to Jerusalem. We're not told why um, he left, but later on, in, uh, which we'll come to in chapter 15, when, when he wants to rejoin them, um, Paul doesn't want to take Mark, John Mark with them because he is someone, so he doesn't want to take with them someone who has, who has withdrawn and not gone with them to do the work. So we're not sure what's happening there. It may just be that, that perhaps the rigours of the, of the whole missionary thing was just getting a bit too hard for him or it might be the, the journey itself so if you can see from the scale on the bottom of the map Perga up to Antioch as the crow flies is a bit over 100 kilometres from Mafra to the township of Ilden is a bit over 100 kilometres so if you know I don't know if Nathan and Mel suddenly said right we're going to walk up to Ilden that's 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 quite a journey on foot so there could have been something in there at the end of the day we just don't know so anyway, they, they, they reach Antioch and, and Paul is invited up to preach. For the first part of his sermon, Paul takes his audience on a quick historical survey. So here in the Jewish synagogue, he uses the Old Testament. He uses texts that his audience would have been very familiar with. Um, and, he, and his aim is to show them here that Jesus is the climax of biblical history. And as we go through, notice the emphasis here. Paul is stressing on what God has done, what God is doing, and that we have no claims on God, and this is why we need, this is why we need grace and, and for God to initiate and act and to choose and to forgive. So, so Paul, well, Paul preaches, so, so men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose, so God chose our fathers, and God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arms, God led them out of it. And for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. And then God, after destroying the seven nations in the land, land of Canaan, God gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, God gave them the judges um, until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for king, and God gave them Saul. Um, and for 40 years and when God had removed him Saul God raised up David to be their king of whom God testified and said I found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart so notice Paul is, is, is stressing here as God who chooses God who leaves God who gives and even God who takes away and puts up with God who perseveres with these people so God is in control here he says firmly God is in control and so Paul continues, of this man's offspring, God, God, again, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus. So notice here, Paul has moved into the present tense. He's telling his hearers uh, that, that, that from the seed of the great King David, God has now brought forth a saviour, Jesus, just as he had promised. And so Paul now builds up his case that it is Jesus who fulfills the Old Testament. And Paul segues with John there, um, 
that John, as the last of the Old Testament-style prophets, with John saying that Jesus was so superior to him that he wasn't even unworthy to untie his sandals. So, yeah, Paul continues. In verse 26, he addresses the two, group, the two groups in his audience. So, would have, so it was the sons of the family of Abraham, so that's the, the, the ethnic Jews, and, the, um, and those who fear God, that would have been the God-fearing Gentiles. Um, and so he's saying, to us has been given the message of salvation. So to us, that's, that's the people there, that's, that's the Jewish nation, that's his Jewish audience. To us has been sent the fulfilment, the consummation of the Old Testament of the prophets. And down in verse 32 there you can see, and this is what the good news is. Um, in verse 27, for those of us who, who live in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a centre of Jewish life. Um, and so he's just pointing out that, you know, back then or there, um, because they did not recognise him or understand the utterance of their prophets, um, they fulfilled these by condemning him. Um, the ESV has utterances. I can't remember what the NASB had, but, but the, the, the King James says voices. So the idea here is not just that, that these are read, but these are the voices, the very voices of the prophets themselves that are speaking to them Sabbath after Sabbath. Um, and then Paul makes the point that these rulers unwittingly fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies by, by condemning Jesus. Even though the prophets which point to him, they're read every week, they still didn't recognise him. And, and in verse 29... Once for all that was written about him was complete, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Some, some Bible versions here have cross, but, but tree is a more accurate, accurate, direct translation. And that reflects back to Deuteronomy 21.23, um, which says that a man that hangs on a tree is cursed. So Christ became the curse for us, the curse in our place. And this is an important point that Paul is making to his audience there. Um, it's also used in, in, in chapter 5 and chapter 10 of Acts. Um, but for the Jews, you know, how, how could God's anointed one, how could his chosen one become a curse? The Messiah was meant to be triumphant, not a curse. How does this happen? And Paul specifically mentions that he was laid in a tomb, and this, this is probably just to emphasise that he was indeed dead. But, but in verse 30, God raised him from the dead. The curse has been reversed. He is raised triumphant after all. And then in verse 31, um, the eyewitnesses to the resurrection are proclaiming this right now in Jerusalem. Brian Borgman points out this, this is not like that old hymn, you know, ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. No, this is Christ where the stone has been rolled away, where the tomb was found empty, where there are eyewitnesses right now testifying to what they've seen. Um, so this is, this is evidentiary proof that he has indeed ridden, risen. And in verses uh, 32 and 33, Paul tells his audience that the good news is simply what was promised to their fathers. This is nothing new or nothing novel, but it's what was promised to them and what was promised to our fathers has now been fulfilled to us, their children. And then Paul moves on uh, to, to prove his points. He has three Old Testament quotes. 
So from Psalm 2-7, thank you Tony, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul's audience would have known that God raised up David to be their king. And the expectation was that for the son of, was for the son of David to also be raised up. But this was not a new um, relationship of sonship. Um, just bear with me. So Acts 10.36 As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. This is, this is not a new relationship of sonship, but in the words of F.F. F. Bruce, this is where Jesus was actually called to his messianic mission. And then in verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. This is from Isaiah 55, verses first three. So Isaiah 55 is written for those who, at the end of the, written for those at the end of the exile, uh, for when God renews His promise to them about the Davidic covenant. Now, this is a quite a good little, um, what's the word I'm after? Description of the Davidic covenant. I thought. So it's an unconditional covenant made between God and David through which Christ promised David and Israel that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from the lineage of David and the tribe of Judah would be established, um, a kingdom that would endure forever. So this is the promise that the Israelites are waiting for. This is their, their expectation. And, um, and then... Um, uh, Paul finishes point here by quoting Psalm 1610. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Whereas David, in verse 36, he died and saw corruption, that is, he was buried and he went to the grave and his body decayed. Your Holy One, who you rose up, did not see corruption, did not rise in the grave. So Paul is making his case here that Jesus is the fulfilment of these promises. And this, this would have been a shock to his hearers. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. So therefore, consequently, for that reason, this is Paul's application of what he's been preaching. And it comes in the form of a promise and a warning. And so the promise, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who is freed, that is justified, from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Um, I put justified there in brackets because the words freed and justified are pretty much the same word. Um, but, but sometimes justified can carry just a little bit more weight um, than just simply freed. Um, but the point is, through, through Jesus, we have forgiveness, we have justification. Through Jesus, we have been freed from our sins. So sin, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed or declared. Um, every one of us... Um, knows we need this forgiveness from sins. Um, I, I can't remember where I picked this idea up from, but um, when, often when you're talking to people, you know, sin, no one believes in sin anymore. But, but the idea is you ask them to, just to sit down and imagine, um, so you go to a movie theatre with all your friends, all your relatives, all your loved ones, and then they start playing a movie of every action and every thought you've ever had. 
And it's interesting because if even non-believers, like, as they start mentally processing that, they, oh, oh, no, no, no. So, so they don't like that idea. And so the idea is, is that even though they don't believe in sin, there's still things that they want people to know about. There's still this idea that there is this... Um, they know they've done things or, or thought of things that, that um, they wouldn't want anyone to know about. So there is a sense of shame there and... and uh, where the shame, there's, there's a reason for that. So what is it that they've done wrong or think they've done wrong? So, so the point is that, that, that sin is a real thing, even if people don't recognise it. But here, Paul's audience, they were certainly aware of sin. And so the forgiveness of sins was something they would have worked at by trying to uphold the law. But as Paul points out, they cannot be freed or justified by the law of Moses. The writer of Hebrews explains this quite well. So from um, chapter 10, verse 1, for since, the law, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be, should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The law cannot free us. It's only through Christ's single sacrifice that we can be freed from sin and sanctified. And so in Acts 13.39, so by him, so through him, through Jesus... Everyone who believes is freed, and that's by trusting and resting on his grace. In the light of these promises, Paul concludes his sermon with a warning. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you, would, would you, that you would not believe, even if no one tells it to you. This is from Habakkuk. Uh, the context of Habakkuk's prophecy is that the, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are going to invade and, and, and conquer them. So, so Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the, Chal- the Chaldeans, that bitter and, bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. When Habakkuk was writing, it seems there was no suggestion that an invasion was imminent. Um, but still, God, through Habakkuk, God warns his people that if they continue to defy him, disaster is looming. And, and, and as Paul's audience would well know, that the Israelites did ignore Habakkuk's warning, and as a result they did suffer, they were conquered by them. Oops. So, so Paul repeats this warning to his audience in Antioch. Here again, God is doing something astounding. Sending Christ who fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and forgiveness of sins is available through him. To ignore this, they will perish. 
As F.F. Bruce said, Great as was the disaster that overtook those who ignored the prophetic warnings, an even greater disaster will befall those who refuse the gospel. So how did the people respond? The initial response was actually pretty good. Many Jews followed Paul. Um, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after, meet, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So where it says the whole city in verse 44, Antioch would have been a mostly Gentile city. And so this means that many Gentiles would have come to the city to hear Paul preach, to hear the good news about Christ for themselves. Um, They're excited. They've never heard this sort of stuff before. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with, with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. While many Jews did follow Paul, it seems many others did not as well. Um, it seems that they had become the very scoffers who Paul warned them not to be. And in the face of that opposition, rather than shy away, verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So how do we go when we're reviled and slandered? Um, it struck me that, that um, earlier on, uh, Paul had first-hand experience of what it was like when the Jews are riled up, when they're angered, because he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was one of those who was um, part of that crowd. And, and as Paul well knew and would come to know how dangerous this was by what happens to him later on. Um, And so I guess in our culture, Christianity has gone from something that was respected and expected to something that's um, politely tolerated um, to something that's at at best is seen backward, at worst um, we're almost the epitome of evil. Um, And while while being a Christian in this country is not illegal, um, we already have cases where people have been sacked from their jobs for upholding um, Christian ideals. And there's also... um, uh, laws on the books that mean you know if, if you pray for the wrong person you could be landed in jail but uh, but back to Paul and Barnabas um, yeah so they speak out boldly in the face of, the, of, of, of uh, speak out boldly in the face of opposition they tell their audience that it's necessary for the word to go to the Jews first and as Romans 1 6 says um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. As, as, as God's chosen people, it's necessary and it's right for them to be given the first opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. But by thrusting it aside, they've judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. The result being that Paul says he will now turn to the Gentiles. And Brian Borgman points out that this is actually an incendiary and inflammatory statement. It's a frontal rebuke to them. And Paul then quotes from Isaiah 49.6, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
Originally, if you remember, it was the Israelites, it was the Jews who were meant to be the light to the nations. Um, Isaiah 49 is one of the servant songs and refers to, to, of course, Jesus. But here it's saying that, in, in Isaiah, it's saying that Jesus is to be a light to the Gentiles. And uh, Luke 2 references this verse as well, when Jesus is born about how he is this light. But, uh, but notice what Paul's saying in here. In verse 47, the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, as the Lord's servants, they are the light as they spread the gospel. And for us here, as the Lord's servants, we are the light as we spread the gospel. And so while the Jews reviled and opposed them, the Gentiles, when they heard of the salvation being offered, responded much differently. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. There are those who not only reject the gospel but actively oppose it, and there are those who hear it and rejoice at the good news. Um, this is this is a two ways to live. If, if you're familiar with that, this is a two ways to live, um, if you will. Just as a side note, um, verse 48: uh, those who believe were appointed to eternal life. But that's wrong. Who is it who believed? As many as as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Again, this is God. This is about God choosing a people for Himself. So, so how can we be bold? Because we know that there are those out there who God has chosen. There is a harvest waiting. And importantly, this may and we need to remember that the context of this, that, that Paul, that God's means is that here he's using and he continues to use people going out and faithfully proclaiming and preaching the gospel. And that's what's happened here. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. The Gentiles hear the word, hear the word, they rejoice and glorify God and then beginning, begin spreading the word to all the people around them, to all those around them. But again, the Jews aren't happy. Whoops. The Jews aren't happy. Um, verse 50. Uh, they incite devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. It's, it's known historically that, among others, Gentile women were attracted to the Jewish religion. Um, they would have been among the God-fearers, who Paul mentions back in verse 26. And the women of high standing, they would have been the wives of, of the leaders of the city, um, uh, these are the influential people, the, the, the movers and shakers, the power brokers of the city. So the Jewish leaders have gone and talked to these, these women, have incited these women, who in turn have gone to their husbands with the effect of Paul and Barnabas now being driven out of the region. But they shake the dust off their feet and go to Iconium. Remember back in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples... And he tells them, among other things, that if, if they aren't received, when they aren't received, to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Uh, there as here, this is a sign of judgment against them, against those who reject the gospel. I, Howard Marshall, uh, he says that, that when, when Jews used to return from pagan lands, um, it was customary to shake the dust off your feet when you entered back into the Holy Land, back into, into Israel. 
Um, and this was a symbol of cleansing themselves from the impurities of being amongst those sinners. So for Paul and Barnabas to do this, they are effectively proclaiming that these Jews are the same as the unbelievers and not part of God's people. And so they move on. And the new converts they left behind, they would have likely faced continued hostility and persecution. And, um, and they've, just seen that they've just seen their teachers driven away. And, but in spite of that, um, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. It took me a little while to work out who the disciples were referring to, but it's not saying apostles, but disciples. And disciples are, are the learners, the students, the new converts. Um, and so in the face of persecution and Paul and Barnabas being driven away, they are not discouraged, but rather they are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Or as F.F. F. Bruce says, they are filled with joy begotten by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit is proof that they are now part of the kingdom of God. So what do we do with all this? So when the time comes, and it will come, are you able to explain the gospel to people? Are you able to point people to Jesus? Paul and Barnabas here, as in many other places, um, they can do that. As we'll we'll see, as as many of you will know, um, Paul's able to change his message to suit his audience. So are we able to um, explain the gospel to people? And this is actually a biblical injunction to us. So Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Um, an exercise we did once was to uh, basically practice your testimony. So write it down, practice it, practice saying it to your wife or a friend or someone. Um, 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 but the, the idea is it's, 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 it just prepares you to be ready to share it. And it's not only your testimony, but, but it's, it's the hope that you have in Christ that you're trying to share with these people. Are you prepared to face the inevitable opposition? Um, I should have put ineffably there or something, but anyway, the inevitable opposition. Jesus said, you'll be hated for my name's sake. In Acts, as as we have already seen and will continue to see, people are imprisoned and die for the gospel. Throughout history and throughout the world, we see people um, imprisoned, persecuted and die for the gospel. So why should we expect to be treated any differently? Will we speak out boldly? Um, will we boldly share the good news of Jesus in the face of opposition? Are you able to rejoice? Um, I guess in the face of opposition, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? So with that fact, um, in the face of opposition, of course we can rejoice. Um, and if we are truly God's people... Uh, and filled with, the, filled with the joy begotten by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that should be our natural reaction, joy. Um, that, that's not to say, of course, that there aren't times, aren't seasons when we struggle with very things and, and we might not feel joyful, but, but it's the joy, it's, it's, it's a fact rather than a feeling. It's the joy, the rejoicing that comes from, from being part of God's people. Um, yeah, so we rejoice in our sufferings. So in our passage today, the people's natural response to the gospel is joy. So in the face of opposition, with the good news of the gospel, of course we can rejoice. Um, 
And as we rejoice, uh, we, we share with those around us the reason for our joy, which is our hope in Christ Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the, just the, the glorious blessings that come uh, through Christ, uh, through hearing your word, um, um, and yeah, just being part of your people, Lord. We just pray, help us to continue to rejoice, to know that joy that is available to us um, uh, in, in our salvation, and help us, Lord, to continue to, to speak to others, to, to spread your word, to just share the wonderful news about uh, who, who your son is and what he has done for us. Um, and especially in the face of opposition, um, help us to continue to boldly preach these things, Lord, uh, in Christ's name. Amen.